And I'm on. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Good morning, everybody. Another beautiful Sunday morning in paradise. Oh, my gosh. I was sitting out last night with some neighbors in the driveway, six feet and all that distancing. And the wind was blowing, and it was in the 70s, and the sky was clear. Ah, paradise is wonderful. Move to Florida. Come on down. Get out of New York and New Jersey. You don't need to be up there. High taxes, high crime, high maintenance, politicians, high maintenance, labor unions, high maintenance, mafia. Oh, my God. Come down here. No taxes. Really, we don't have any income tax down here. We have property tax, of course, in the counties, and we have uh, sales tax, which is pretty much what supports us. And we've got a lot of sunshine, and we've got a lot of good things down here. By the way, there's no inheritance tax, so you may pay your federal inheritance tax, but you won't pay state inheritance tax. So this is the place to be. Come to Florida. Come on down. And with that little sales pitch for our state, I want to tell you about a really great event that happened this week at the hospital, our little hospital. Uh, we've got a wonderful infectious disease doctor, uh, Denise. I won't say her last name because she's real shy about that. But she filled out all the paperwork, petitioned FEMA and the CDC to get some remdesivir, which is the experimental antiviral drug that uh, Gilead is, is producing and it's in trial now. And we got compassionate use clearance, and she got enough doses for 10 or 12 patients. And that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And so the pharmacist and I, we, we met in the hallway, and we walked up to the front door, and this guy came from the Department of Health with these two big boxes of, of the vaccine, and, it, and uh, we took it back to the pharmacy. I got a picture of it after we opened it up. So this is, uh, this is really something for our little hospital to, to have received and to have gotten. Now, we don't know how effective this drug is. The problem with a lot of these compassionate use drugs, which means it's, un, it's unapproved as yet by the uh, FDA uh, for use in the coronavirus, the COVID-19 virus, but we're allowing it or the FDA is allowing it for compassionate use uh, to see how it works, because there's been some studies suggesting that it might be effective. And so that's what compassionate use drugs are. They're drugs that are still in the experimental phase. They have not been cleared for general use by the FDA. <clears throat> and we are lucky enough to have gotten this. And this drug interferes with the virus's replication of its genetic material. It's RNA. There's two types of genetic material, RNA in broad categories, RNA and DNA. And so RNA is uh, what goes outside of the cell nucleus and into the main body of the cell and is replicated to make more DNA. And you can have RNA that is both capable of making DNA and RNA that's capable of making more, more RNA. And this is an RNA virus, so it makes more of its own RNA and then assembles its little self and kills the cell and gets out and goes and infects more cells. And uh, so that's how this works. It's, it's, it's really a, a wonderful thing to see. And we're, we're so lucky to have uh, Denise on staff. She's just one hardworking little gal and, and uh, we love her to death. So I'll throw that out for her. <clears throat> now the, uh, the virus, by the way, and I know everybody's sick of hearing about it, but 
I wanted to tell you about a study out of Wuhan, one of the hospitals there. The hospital uh, tested about 3,000 of their employees for the virus, both by swabbing their throat or nose and, uh, and then seeing if it was positive for the virus particles. And they also drew serum for serology to see if they had had the virus and had cleared it out, but now had IgM or IgG antibodies to it. <clears throat> and what they found was that a small percentage uh, of the hospital population were asymptomatic and had had it or were still carrying it around. And they even did CAT scans on all these people to see if anybody had any any uh, symptoms in their chest, you know, any findings on on the x-ray, the CT scan of the chest. And they found that about 40 cases had the classic, what we call in medicine, the ground glass appearance in the lungs, a ground glass appearance. If you've ever seen ground glass, you, you grind it up, it's kind of semi-opaque, uh, but still light diffuses through it. And we see a similar pattern on the x-ray in, in certain types of pneumonias, especially viral pneumonias that uh, are between the little air sacs in the lungs and, and not inside the air sac. You know, strep pneumonia, the classic pneumococcal pneumonia, is actually inside the little air sacs, and that's where it proliferates, but the viruses proliferate outside of the air sacs in the tissue between the air sacs and the blood vessels. And so <clears throat> they... Uh, looked at the population of the hospital and the rate of infection was higher among the what they call the laborers which are the the, the non-professional people housekeeping and uh, maintenance and kitchen workers uh, that's just the term that the that the chinese use for their non-professional workers in the hospital uh, and they surmised that this was in large part because the professional people, the doctors and the nurses and the therapists, had gone through the training for the COVID virus, how to wear, what to wear, your your profession, your personal protective equipment, <coughs> excuse me, face mask and uh, shielded glasses or, or face shields and gowns when you're working closely with, with someone who has the virus so that you don't get the the cough, the, the droplets, the spray on you, or if you're a nurse who's cleaning their butt and, you know, helping them off it on the bedpan, if you get bodily secretions on you, it won't be on your clothes. It'll be on a plastic throwaway. So the takeaway message from all of this is that there is a small percentage of us who are walking around in the hospitals that have, have or had the virus. We're capable, if we still have it in our nose and throat, of spreading it to other people through cough and sneezing, and that the best way for people to get back to work, and this was the suggestion that these researchers made in Wuhan to their health department there in their province and in the federal health department in, in China, was that they should train factory workers and people in, in the workplace on how to protect themselves and protect other people from them by utilizing the protective gear that we now have available, it's fairly ubiquitous now, and we can devise things as well. As you know, I've been yelling about masks for over six weeks now, Ken. Oh, my gosh. Finally, people are starting to listen. I have mine with me right now, just in case. 
I gave that to you too, dude. You did. It's a very good mask. Thank you very much. Hey, are you going to pay me or what? I'm sorry, Doc. What was that? (laughs) (laughs) I got this new microphone, folks. I bought a shotgun microphone for the studio, and uh, I know now he can hear everything I say. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very nice-sounding mic, by the way. Yeah, he said he had an excuse. My microphone wasn't top quality. so (laughs) (laughs) Checks in the mail, Doc. Checks in the mail. All right, I'll wait for it. So at any rate, I think the the take-home message here is I'm all for getting everybody back to work. I think we need to uh, stop the lockdown. But the politicians and the CDC people who have, and I don't care if they're Democrats or Republicans, on both sides of the aisle, this has not been handled properly. We need to get back to work, but we need to do it safely. And, you know, the the fact that the governor in Florida said, you know, well, you can ease up and, you know, restaurants, 25 percent capacity and all that. People are going in with no mask on. I, I, we went down to downtown Gulfport to one of the little bars, corner bars, and it's it's an open air bar. You know, it has outside seating and the inside the uh, the actually it's just a big patio. You know, they pull back the 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 storm doors and it's just wide open. So there's a good breeze blowing through it. And uh, there's not many people, so it's pretty safe. But still, the waitresses aren't wearing masks and they don't have on gloves. I mean, I don't think the gloves are that big of a deal. I think the face mask and and uh, some kind of protective eyewear is more important. But nevertheless, you know, I will say again, and I'll probably have to start a campaign for this. Um, You know, I think I was instrumental in getting a good part of the country to to realize the benefits of the mask. But I think that we now need to press our leaders to educate us on how to protect ourselves in the workplace. And let's get out of the house. But put on a mask. Put on some protective eyewear if you're going to be in close contact with people, serving people. For goodness sakes, somebody coughs or sneezes on you and, you know, you you might just end up with this virus. And although the death rate is low, uh, if you spread it as, as contagious as it is, then we're going to have a lot of people that are sick in the hospital and dying. And, uh, and you know, right now we're not overwhelmed, but when we do get overwhelmed, then we're not going to admit people unless, unless they're salvageable uh, under a certain age and have uh, uh, some real reasons to be in the hospital. We've got, I'm seeing two or three people now, Ken, that really don't need to be in the hospital. They're, they have the virus and they've got some changes on the x-ray, but they're not sick. They're not requiring uh, the intensive care that we would think somebody would need if they were in dire straits uh, in, in the, uh, in, with the inability to breathe in, in the end stages of this disease. I mean, these people could go home or back to the nursing homes they came from with some oxygen and medications, and they can always come back to the hospital. But right now, we're still learning as we go. But here's the takeaway. And then I'm not going to I'm not going to hammer this anymore because I've got other things I want to talk about today. We need better education from the CDC on how to proceed. We need some mandatory regulations. Let us get out of the house. Let us get back to work. But let's do it with the safety measures in place. That includes masks, protective eyewear for those who are in close contact with the public. And uh, uh, if you're handling food. Uh, or serving or uh, in contact with with anything that could be transmitted orally, then you need to be wearing gloves. And and, and that's all I'm going to say about that today. So there. What do you think? Thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's becoming overwhelming now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you're welcome. You're Velcro. That way it'll stick. <laughs> you know, one more thing. I was reading something just yesterday on the Internet. I'm not sure who did the study, but somebody said that women are more likely to wear masks than men because men see them as being weak. That's wrong attitude to have, isn't it? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm weak, and I wear a mask, but that doesn't mean that all men are weak. But even manly, much macho guys, they, I guess they think wearing a mask is just a sign of weakness, but that's wrong, guys. Put the mask on. Yeah, that's wrong. I mean, look, a mask is, is just, you know, it's like a, dare I say it, is, is Barbara listening? Uh, you know, a protective device, a prophylactic there you device. Go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be calling you, did you censor that out? <laughs> that handle, but I'm going to kill him. <laughs> So, so put the mask on, guys. It doesn't make you look weak on. at all. And actually, I'm not weak. For 71 years old, I'm, I'm pretty darn strong. Um, I can still flip a 200-pound guy over my shoulder and drop my knee in his throat and kill him with one karate chop. Wow, I'm impressed. I couldn't you do that when I was 25. You believe that? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, at any rate, wear the mask, guys. It's It's just common sense. I mean, it's not something, uh, there's no rocket science to this, and it doesn't mean that you're weak or you're incapable of fighting off an infection. But, you know, here's the thing. It's not just for your benefit. It's for mine, because if you got the virus and you don't know it, and you're coughing all over the place, then you're, you're endangering my life, which, of course, we don't like. That's not nice at all. And uh, we won't have that. If you, could box the, if you could box the virus, I'm sure you'd take it, guys. But, you know, it's just too small for you. It's too small. I mean, th these things are so small, we can't even see them with a microscope. We have to use an electron microscope, and we can't see inside of them. We just uh, discern that from, from biochemical testing and from unraveling their little RNA. But, uh, you know, we can't even see inside of, this, of these little viruses. All we see is the capsule. Um, pretty cool-looking little things, but, you know. But they're, nasty. they're, they're nasty, yeah. They're, they're bad actors. This is a bad virus. It's very, very contagious. And even though the death rate's going to be well below 1%, uh, let, let's say, as I've said before, that you got a billion people around the world infected. 1% of that is, what, 10 million? Holy moly, that's a lot of people to take care of. It is. Yes, sir. It's a lot of people to take care of in, in their dying stages. And, and you know what's happening uh, in, in, like, in New York City? They are just telling people, well... If you're not if you're not sick, don't come to the hospital. We don't want you. Even if you tested positive for the virus, if you're not dying, stay at home. And uh, we don't know how many people are actually dying at home, Ken. We because we don't have, you know, we, somebody dies at home and it's some old guy like me, and they just think, well, he probably just had a heart attack. Well, because he didn't have a fever or chills, he wasn't sick. And but you know what? A lot of these people probably had the virus. You know, I know we're t we're. Uh... We said we we're going to get off the subject, but just one, one more thing. T testing and tracking, we're hearing a lot about that these days. Is that something that's really that vital? Well, I think that for the epidemiology of it, that is the study of the spread of the epidemic, we do need to do as much testing and tracking as we possibly can. Uh, that way we can project the uh, spread of the virus, and as we project the spread of the virus, we can also project what the demand on the healthcare system will be so that we can ramp up to meet that. You know, it's, it's like any war 
you got to assess the enemy's strengths and weaknesses and figure out where they're going to hit you and when and how to best prepare a defense for that. So um, I think that it is important. Uh, how long that will be important, I don't know. Uh, but certainly at this point in time, if you have the opportunity to be tested and you think you might have had the virus or you do have it, I would say if, as long as you're not going to harm anybody and they're not going to harm you, go get tested. What the heck? Um, we're going to test ourselves. You know, I've been in the hospital now for six weeks around people with this this virus, and God knows who's been walking down the hallways coughing and sneezing. Now, I've been very careful, though, Ken. I've been wearing a mask since the beginning of March when everybody was poo-pooing it, and, and you know, I was yelling at some of the other doctors, put on your mask, especially the, the guys my age. You know, my friend Al, who I've talked about on the show before, he he was laughing at me, and, and his son-in-law, who is another doctor on staff, has made he and Chet, the two older radiologists at the hospital, stay home. So they've been working from home. He won't let them leave. And, you know, Chet asked me uh, at the beginning of March, he said, Bill, Doris wants to go to Switzerland. They've got a chalet there. They've done extremely well, those two radiologists. And uh, he said, what do you think? I said, Chet, you are not leaving town. You are not getting on an airplane. You're not going anywhere. You are grounded, and you can tell Doris I'll come over there and personally put handcuffs on her, <laughs> chain her to the to the radiator if she tries to get out of town. And so they're hunkered down, uh, and um, I heard from him last week. But one of the guys, I don't know if I told you about this uh, last week, Chet, uh, not Chet, uh, Ken, uh, one of our friends, Sunal, he decided at the beginning of March that he and his wife, they didn't think it was a big deal. So they decided they would go to Peru. He's originally from Peru and do a little sightseeing and visit old friends and all that. He ended up in the ICU up at Morton Plant Meese on the ventilator for two weeks. And they were about to pull the plug. They called the family and they thought he was dead. Somehow he made the turnaround and now he's in rehab from what I hear. But, uh, you know, he's my age, he's 71 and I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, he's a really smart guy and just a sweetheart and a nice guy, but not a lick of common sense, not one lick. It's amazing to me how many doctors don't have any common sense uh, when it comes to things like this. You know, I, I guess we think we're invincible. I guess that's just human nature, though, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. The, the moral of the story is stay home as much as you can. If you're going to go out, make sure you're protected. Yeah, wear protection and uh, and, and listen to Dr. Bill, of course. Uh, that's of course. Not- that's the second most important thing, because here's where you'll get the truth about all of this. Oh, by the way, there's a, a new study out. Uh, there's a guy named Thomas Bayes, and he was born in around 1700, and he was uh, a Presbyterian minister and, and a scientist and a mathematician, and he devised something known as Bayes' theorem, or the Bayesian theorem, or the Bayesian uh, uh, formula, which is a statistical formula that looks at the probability of an event happening of something of something coming to to truth or to light uh, based upon other factors involved that are not necessarily directly related to that so for instance uh, with this formula you can look at say you can and and uh, and we can figure out the likelihood of you having heart disease based upon your past medical history, whether it be high blood pressure or diabetes or cholesterol, not saying that you have that. 
your age, your smoking history, uh, your family history. And we, we know, because we've been building this scientific data for centuries, we know that some of these things are fairly uh, consistent. Uh, when we put all these factors in, we can say, well, your risk for having a heart attack is, you know, 10% within the next year or 0% or 1%. And so using Bayes' theorem, we can figure out, now we're not going to exactly predict who's going to have a heart attack and who's not, but if we look at a broad swath of the population and apply this theory to, to it and to their, their different uh, categories, let's say all guys 70 years old with high blood pressure and, and high cholesterol who smoked at least 20 years of their life and have a family history of heart disease, then their likelihood of having heart disease, whether they have a heart attack or not, that having blocked arteries is, say, 20%. And that doesn't mean that you're definitely going to have it. It means that 20% of this population will have it. Fascinating. I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that that's true. I'm just I'm using that as an example. So using Bayes' theorem, uh, these researchers have started to put together models for how this virus is, is behaving, uh, when it will flatten out and where. And, you know, they're predicting from the Bayes' theorem for this month, they're predicting a rise in the, uh, in the rate of the virus spreading into Africa and some of the Central Asian countries to be rapidly climbing, whereas in the United States and Western Europe, the curve is flattening out. And uh, although it's short term right now, because we don't have enough data to plug in a year's worth of, of uh, information, certainly we can plug in two to three months worth uh, from, from all the experience we have from Wuhan and now from uh, Europe and the United States and a few other places around the world, South Korea, areas where we keep good records and, and do good uh, epidemiologic investigations, we can start to predict. And this is important because we need to know, is there going to be a, a jump again in this? And if so, what resources do we need to marshal to meet this? And, and this goes back to what you were asking, Ken, is, is testing a value. At this point, I would say, yes, it is, if for no other reason than the epidemiology of it, so we can figure out what to do and where to go and, and how to man up. And, and, and confront this. So I, I think that all of this is very important, and I want everybody to take it seriously. And again, if you think you have been exposed or you have symptoms of the virus, you need to go get tested, even if you don't need treatment, even if you don't need to be in the hospital. And people say, well, look, if I test positive, then I'm going to be locked down. I'm going to be quarantined for two weeks. And oh my God, I've got to go out and make money. And I understand that. I mean, you know, look, if you think that you've been exposed and you're not sick and you're not going to go get tested because you don't want to be quarantined, then for God's sakes, at least put on the damn mask when you go out and protect the rest of us. Because there's some of us that are at high risk. By the way, the study in Wuhan I was talking about earlier, the, uh, the population where it really went up, where they found that there were people that were positive were the older, you know, the guys over 60 and 70. And it was pretty much evenly split between the men and the women. And, you know, Ken, what I'm saying in our hospital is the majority of the cases we've seen so far are women. And I'm, I'm guessing, and I don't think that that, that is uh, because they're more susceptible. I think it's because we're seeing more nursing home patients. And, of course, the women live longer than the men. And they populate, you know, there's more women in the nursing homes uh, per capita and so they populate the nursing homes greater and 
and they're more sociable and more likely to hug and kiss and get close. And so I'm guessing that's probably why we have more women in the hospital. But uh, it's fascinating to see that the studies are now suggesting that may not be a difference between older men and women, that we may catch it at the same rate equally. So it's an equal opportunity virus. And so any of you women out there who are worried about being left out, don't worry. It's going to get you too. <laughs> so go ahead, go out to that restaurant, but make sure you're wearing your mask. Wear your mask. Wear your mask. For God's sakes, wear that mask. So uh, Bay's a, he's an interesting guy, I'm, I'm telling you. Uh, what always fascinated me historically about uh, a lot of these uh, age of enlightenment and age of man uh, scientists and mathematicians uh, in, in England and, and, and the, on the continent is that they, they were ministers or they were highly religious people. You know, Isaac Newton never married. He, he considered it one of his, one of the best things he ever did was not to marry. So he was, he was like a monk. He was a very religious guy. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah I mean, they're fascinating. There's a lot of these guys are really fascinating. You know, the, a lot of the research, uh, the, the, the native, what we would consider the modern research began in the, uh, in the, 17th and 18th century with these guys. Uh, the 18th century was the great age of enlightenment, and that's where uh, people like Locke and Dunn and Montesquieu um, wrote their philosophical theses, which became the basis of our, our form of government and our way of life. And a lot of the Declaration of Independence was just a rephrasing of things that they had already said. Uh, so, by the way, you know, Thomas Jefferson did not make up all of that. He just was the wordsmith that hammered the Declaration of Independence together. And although he's been credited with having made up a lot of those sayings, a lot of that was already around. You know, you can read Washington's early letters in the 1760s and 70s, and these guys writing back and forth to each other, Marshall and Knox and all these guys. And, you know, all this was already in common parlance in the colonies and in a lot of, part of the parts of the world that were uh, following the Age of Enlightenment and the uh, the philosophers like Locke and and Dunn and Montesquieu and so on and so forth. So, but uh, Thomas Jefferson was the wordsmith. He hammered it together in a way that nobody else could. Thankfully, yeah. we appreciate that. Yeah. So listen, uh, we're we're getting close to a break, but I wanted to tell you when I'm when I'm back, I'm I'm going to talk about the Fourth Amendment and. Uh, a little bit of why I think it's important in light of what's going on with uh, General Flynn. And now that we're finding out that a lot of this is just baloney, that these guys were making up anything that they had it in for Flynn, that Obama didn't like him because Flynn disagreed with him on the Iranian situation. And uh, then you also had the never Trumpers. And, you know, I'm surprised in this neighborhood here. I would have thought there'd be more, uh, more conservatism in my little uh, townhouse condominium community here, but oh my God, I'm surrounded by <laughs> never Trumpers. I'm afraid to open my mouth. And, uh, and you know, they, they listen to CNN, which is basically just pablum. And they, they quote uh, one little piece and say, well, did you hear what he said? He said that people should inject uh, disinfectants into their veins to try to kill the virus. And he never said that. He never said that. No. I'm saying, I said, are you sure? Did you listen to the speech? I did. I listened to the whole speech. So then I pull it up on my phone 
and I'm listening to it with them. And of course, then that stops the conversation because that's not what he said. No, not at all. And he, you know, he's not a scientist. He's not a doctor. He's looking over at the CDC. Uh, uh, what's her name? The woman doctor. Um, and asking her, you know, is there anything that we can inject, you know, some kind of antiseptic or something? Is there? He didn't say do it. He's 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 querying. He's asking. He's questioning. One thing I can uh, tell you from 40 years of radio, people hear what they want to hear, Doc. Oh, they do. And, you know, uh, did you ever play telephone when you were a kid? Yeah, sure. Oh, my God. You know, you'd say, you'd get 10 people in a circle. I'm, I'm sure everybody did this. But and one person would say something to the person next to them, like, uh, your mother wears boots, and then you'd whisper it in there, and they'd whisper it, and then go around and around and see what what came back, and what came back was completely unrelated <laughs> to what right. you initially said. Uh, but you know, this is this—I guess this is human nature. You hear what you want to hear. Exactly. Oh well, what are you going to do? Shall we go to a uh, break, sir? We're going to go to a break. That's what we're going to do. And hey, listen, when I come back, you can join me if you want. I'm at eight seven seven. Nine six nine eighty six hundred eight seven seven nine six nine eighty six hundred. This is Doctor Bill, your radio MD. With SRN News, I am Michael Harrington in Washington. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu finally swearing in his new government after three deadlocked and divisive elections. A year and a half of political paralysis and another three-day delay. Over the weekend, both Netanyahu and his rival-turned-partner Benny Gantz announced their appointments for the new government, the most bloated in Israeli history. Netanyahu and Gantz announced last month they would be putting their differences aside to join forces to steer the country through the coronavirus. Spain's two largest cities still largely shut down while most of the country has been reopened following a lockdown to fight the coronavirus. Madrid and Barcelona have been told to wait by government health officials since they have been in the hardest-hit areas. And it's been weeks since Congress unleashed more than $2 trillion to help deal with the crisis. Lawmakers still have not set up the Oversight Commission, though. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Dr. Bill here. With social distancing and sheltering in place, telemedicine is here. Bay Area Medical Home of Can Care Clinic offers telemedicine for new and established patients. You can see me without an office visit. Schedule an appointment at 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. When it's time for your appointment, type this web address into your cell phone or computer web browser, doxy.me forward slash Bay Area Med. A cell phone works well and is all you really need. For computers, you need a web camera and speakers. We'll give you this address when you call for your appointment. We accept most insurances and travel insurances. Canadians and visitors, please call your travel insurance company for an authorization number prior to the visit. Co-pays and deductibles apply. Self-pay rates are available. Just ask. We accept credit cards, PayPal, and Stripe. 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. 
Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727 727- Five four five nine six seven four. Investment advisory services offered through Sound Income Strategies LLC, an SEC registered investment advisory firm. During difficult times, it's important not to be frozen by fear or complacency, thinking that Congress, the Fed, or your current financial planner will fix the impact of the pandemic on your retirement savings. The bottom line is, no one else is going to care about your retirement the way you do. It's time to stop crossing your fingers and toes, hoping for growth, and reset your retirement for income using interest and dividends. Call 888-888-4176 now to learn how the Retirement Income Store can help during these uncertain times. 888-888-4176. We'll send you our Retirement Income Kit with five educational tools, including David Scranton's best-selling book and a no-obligation call with an income specialist. 888-888-4176. The Retirement Income Store where retirees go for income. Call 888-888-4176 now. Take AM860, The Answer, with you wherever you go with our mobile app, TheAnswerTampa.com, Alexa, TuneIn, iHeart, and at Radio.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Selena Zito joins me. She just sat down with President Trump. Selena Zito runs rings around people in the Beltway for her reporting, for her stories, for her sources. And, of course, for sitting down with President Trump. She'll tell us all about her latest scoop on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Weekday mornings at 6 on AM 860. The Answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. A mostly sunny day today with a high 89. Tonight, mainly clear, low 74. For tomorrow, partly sunny with a thunderstorm. High getting up to 85. Then at night, some clouds with a thunderstorm in spots late at night, low 75. And for Tuesday, mainly cloudy with a couple of showers and a thunderstorm, high 84. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Kevin Snyder for AM860, The Answer. Hey now, hey now. Dr. Bill is back little bit of crowded house and don't dream it's over don't let them don't let them split us apart when the war comes in so we had a call from uh one of our wonderful fans who i greatly appreciate love you guys and she wants to know how effective the anti-serum is in treating the coronavirus the covid19 virus now what this is is this is cooled uh serum plasma from people who have had the virus, have cleared the virus out of their bodies, and now have uh, antibodies to the virus. Antibodies are, as I've told you guys before, are the, uh, the proteins that we make to fight off foreign invaders in our, in our body, like bacteria and viruses. And it's important that we have these. This is how we get over and survive uh, serious illnesses and and this is what we do when we give you a vaccination. We try to stimulate uh, antibodies to certain antigens like viruses and bacteria. It seems to be helpful in, in shortening the time to clearance of the virus from the system and, and to returning people to uh, uh, an ambulatory that is back on their feet state. 
We don't know exactly what the success rate is because it's still in an experimental phase. Uh, again, this is another compassionate use medication or therapy that we have in our armamentarium. And uh, I think it's going to be a, a great one. Uh, and I'm going to guess that there'll be about a 70% success rate, depending on how early on we give it. Part of the problem with, with compassionate use drugs and therapies like this is that they aren't instituted until late in the disease process when the, the patient may already be overwhelmed with the infection and that it's not going to make a whole lot of difference what you do, that the even if the virus is cleared, the secondary effects of the virus, the inflammation and the all the the, the byproducts, the uh, inflammatory chemicals and the waste products and the abnormal blood clotting that go along with, with this disease, uh, this syndrome, really I should call it a syndrome, it's not only a disease, it's a syndrome, uh, may have already taken hold and, and, and it may be too late. So that again is a problem with compassionate use. And, and you know, as I tell people, my mother uh, was one of the first, if not the first doctor outside of the military in Kentucky to give a shot of penicillin. And she gave it to a kid who was dying of pneumonia. Well, the kid was dying. So, you know, it was kind of late in the game and the child didn't make it, but at least she tried. And, and that doesn't mean that it didn't work. It just means that it was very late in the game because we now know that penicillin became the drug in the 1940s and the 1950s for treating uh, gram-positive infections like pneumococcal pneumonia and strep throat and Anonokas. Ken, I got a butt full of that more than once. Finally, I just refused to go to the office with my parents because I knew I was going to get a shot. That stuff hurt. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm sorry, buddy. <laughs> I'm still sore back there. I guess it would make it better. <laughs> so I hope that helps everybody out there. Um, I think it's a good thing. It makes common sense medically, and I'm, I'm not I'm not going to say no to it ever. I would take it. I would certainly think it would be a good a good good thing to try. Well, at any rate, let's jump ship and we'll go over to uh, to some political stuff and some legal stuff. Now, the Fourth Amendment you may or may not remember it, is uh, the right of the people to be secure in their person, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizures. That's part of the Fourth Amendment. That was in the Bill of Rights. And what happened with the Bill of Rights is that when the Constitution was ratified in 1789, several states, including, I think, Virginia, said, well, we're not going to join unless we have a Bill of Rights. And so the new Congress said, okay, look, if you will we'll go ahead and sign the dec the uh, Constitution, the new Constitution. Uh, we'll guarantee, we'll promise that we'll have a Bill of Rights within a couple of years. And then in 1791, we did have the Bill of Rights. The, the, the Bill of Rights is considered the first 10 amendments. There were actually 12. And I think it was Mason that was the uh, ramrod on that. He, he was one of the unsung heroes of the founding fathers. And he I believe, wrote those first 12 amendments to the Constitution. You think about it, Ken, we've got 12 amendments that were written as a mandate for some of the states to join the Union in 1789. And since then, we've had, uh, I think we have a total of what, 26 or seven amendments. So in our 200 plus years, we've had, what, 14 amendments that have been added on? 
that's a pretty small number. Yes, and, but the nice thing about that, that's the amazing thing about the Constitution, it is flexible. It is flexible, and, uh, and it is also uh, so well-written. It was so well-conceived as a legal document. You know, basically, it's just a contract between the federal government, the state government, um, the people, and the different branches of the federal government. It's just a contract for uh, who does what and how to behave, and it's a good thing. So here's the thing with General Flynn now. He's having a conversation as an incoming officer of uh, President Trump's cabinet uh, with the foreign minister of Russia at that time. And they're talking about the sanctions that were levied against the Russians by previous governments, uh, Obama and um, Bush, too. I don't know who all was involved in it. And, of course, Obama... uh, uh, and particularly because of the influence of Hillary Clinton. Her father was a Russian hater. He was a, a, a vehement anti-Russian guy. And, of course, she was raised with that man. And so she became vehemently anti-Russian, uh, unless there's cash in it, I would guess. And then, you know, <laughs> that's a different story. <laughs> if, you can get a, if you can get a donation, then you can make, a, you can make an exception. But... Uh, so you have all these anti-Russian sentiments, and, uh, and of course, Flynn got Obama upset, and Obama didn't like the fact that, that Flynn uh, was not in lockstep with him on Iran and did not agree with the Iran uh, deal that, that Obama made, which you know a lot of us had raised eyebrows about and said, this isn't going to work. I mean, first of all, how can you have a, a treaty that says you won't make nuclear materials that are that are weapon grade and you won't use uh you know your 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 they've got these these huge centrifuges that they use that you keep spinning the u2 you know, the uranium ore down uh and the u-235 is lighter than the u-238 the u-235 is the is the radioactive part of the uranium, a very small portion of it, you know, like a tenth of a percent of it. So you have to do a lot of of purification of this. And so you have to put the material through thousands of these huge centrifuges. They they actually turn it into uh, uh, gas, uh, semi-gas, and then they shoot that in there and they spin this stuff around in the U-238, uh, comes out, and you do that repetitively until you get enough U-235 to either make uh, uh, a core for a nuclear reactor so you can generate some electricity, or and that takes about 20% purity, so you have about 80% U-238 and about 20% U-235. Now, when you get up to about 90% U-235, you have what's called weapons grade, and that is high enough that you can have a super fusion and you can have an explosion. Below that, uh, you can't get the explosion. You can get the fusion, and it'll heat up, as we can see in a nuclear reactor. And if you get too much of it too close together too quickly, like at Chernobyl, it'll actually heat up and melt its way right down through the earth until it hits a water table, and then it shoots off a, a thermal explosion and puts all that radioactivity into the air. All that aside, <clears throat> I'm sorry to have digressed, but let's look at the... Uh, Let's look at the Fourth Amendment and how it would apply in this setting. First of all, uh, at the point in time when they were surveilling General Flynn and listening to his conversations with the Russian ambassador, he was, A, a private citizen, 
and B, an incoming official, and he had every right to talk to the Russian ambassador about whatever he wanted. I mean, they could have talked about horse racing. He could say, you know, I don't agree with the sanctions that have been put on Russia, and I'll work to see what I can do to get them resolved. But uh, that's, that's not illegal. And so we have found out as we've gone along, although the liberal press won't report it, that actually nothing improper was said or done. And the same with the conversation with the president of, of the Ukraine by Trump, uh, that nothing improper was said or done. And they, I mean, they couldn't find anything to impeach him on other than abuse of power. And uh, of course, they were just projecting because the abuse of power was not by Trump and his team. It was by the left-wing Democrats who wanted to take their power and use it in an illegal and uh, unethical way to unseat a president. Of course, it didn't work, but uh, they did their best. So why do we have this? Where did this Fourth Amendment come from? Uh, the sp specific evil that this amendment uh, was to ensure it wouldn't happen again was the writ of assistance and general warrants uh, that the Crown was issuing in the 1760s about the colonials for or against the colonials, which granted law enforcement in the colonies broad power to perform searches with little or no justification. And so the Fourth Amendment enshrined and embodied the common law protection of having reasonable search and seizure of items that are considered or, or were considered at that time to be uh, tangible items, person, house, papers, effects. And it was grounded in proper law. And uh, there was a case in 1765 in Antic versus Carrington in which this was set down. And all this goes all the way back to the Magna Carta, you know, back in uh, with King, King John and, and, uh, and all the uh, nobles who were not happy with being stepped on by the by the Norman rulers, all the uh, northern English kings and lords who were the great-great-grandchildren of the Vikings, and they didn't like all that they were being put through, so they stepped right back on the king and made him sign that. So this goes back into common law way back where. And part of the problem is that at the time it was framed, the framers did not or could not envision, we, we think, I mean, maybe Hamilton was, was smart enough to envision it, but most of them probably weren't, that we would have things like cell phones and the computer. And so there's essentially a, an unlimited number of ways that information can be um, transmitted and transferred electronically. And so, and, and by the way, that was another reason why we had to update the FISA, FISA Act that was uh, passed in the late 1970s and again uh, revised after 9-11 and it's had amendments made to it since then and we're seeing some more amendments being proposed now in light of General Flynn and the unmasking. But that act was set up so that the government could legally surveil foreign agents and spies using electronic equipment. And back, back in the 70s, there were telephones, and then the novel thing was uh, was wiretapping, although that had been around a long time. But wiretapping using 
the newer techniques of computers and the micro bugs. You know, back in the 30s and 40s, when you wiretapped, you had to actually climb up onto a telephone pole, and a guy would actually hook up to the lines going in and out of your house, your telephone lines, and, and tap into them. And that was what wiretapping meant. So it's progressed, and it's, it's, of course, much more sophisticated than that now. So we have had to expand these guarantees uh, of the Fourth Amendment so that we could meet the, uh, the new technology and the demands. And this isn't just to get somebody that you may or may not like or agree or disagree with, and you may be a never-Trumper and a hater, and you may think that Flynn's a no-good, low-down, dirty, rotten son of a gun because he said one thing to the FBI and then, to a, and then turned around and said something else, not even knowing that he was under investigation. Um, and, you know, I mean, come on, this is not a brain surgeon here. This is a military guy. So we don't expect these guys to be able to and he's not a lawyer, and he didn't know that he was really under investigation. So he probably didn't think that, you know, well, you know, I forgot. I said that I didn't talk to the to the Russian ambassador when I did. And, I, you know, my apologies. I was thinking of something else. But come on, it's not a big deal anyway. But lying to the FBI apparently is something that you can be held accountable for unless you're entrapped. And then that's where the where the story gets even thicker. So. You've got the FBI coming in and surveilling without a warrant, without a valid warrant. I mean, they've got a FISA court warrant. And you say, well, what's the difference between FISA court warrant and a regular warrant? Well, in a regular warrant, uh, the, the, the people, the police, the district attorney, they go to the judge and they say, uh, Your Honor, we think that Dr. Bill is... Um, harboring slaves in his basement. I don't have a basement, so that it's not going to happen. But uh, we think that he's breaking the law, and we want a warrant to go into his house and check it out. And so then he says, well, where's your evidence? And they present some evidence, and he says, you know, I don't know about this. Um, we better hear from the other side so you can have somebody come in. Now, you can contest the warrant, but if there's reasonable cause— then the judge may say, well, I'm going to go ahead and give you a warrant. And then when you when I go to court, when they come in and they realize that I don't have a basement, so I don't have any slaves, they, then they say, well, you know, we made a mistake. And I say, well, yeah, but you you didn't do your your due diligence. You didn't do your homework. You, you don't even know my home. You don't even know anything about me, and I'm suing you. And so we go to court, and so then it comes out. Then we get to see my side, the, the plaintiff, or the defense gets to see what the prosecution has. Now, with a FISA warrant or a FISA warrant, what happens is nobody knows about it because it's a private uh, secret court set up. Initially, there were 11 judges in it, and they would, I don't know how many there are now, and they would rotate through. And uh, these judges would hear these uh, requests for a warrant from the FBI or the CIA or whoever, whatever agency was seeking to to uh, wiretap or eavesdrop or uh, break into your home when you were not there and, and look for explosives or whatever it is they're, they're doing. And so it would be what they called ex parte, ex meaning of or from parte one side. And it means that only, only the, the cops or the prosecutor knows about this. Nobody else knows about this. It's not a public warrant. 
However, if you have a warrant to search my home for slaves, then that's going to be published somewhere. That, that can be discovered, but these cannot be discovered. They can't be discovered legally uh, without an act of Congress, which we are now saying, and the Freedom of Information Act. And so we have got to have some control over this because we see that these guys went and got these warrants to surveil members of Trump's team without any any basis. And the, 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 the FISA court judges are supposed to demand some accountability from the people bringing them in and say, well, let me see your, your goods. Let me see what you got. And they can only go on what they're presented with. And so the FBI didn't give the whole story to the FISA judges. And so the FISA judges said, yeah, go ahead and let's see what's going on. Let's, you know, it sounds reasonable. But the FBI didn't give all the information. They lied or they used uh, the Steele dossier, which was doctored. It was ponied up. It was, it was nonsense. Steele under oath said, I made it up. <laughs> he said, I made it all up. They made this stuff up. And so the Fourth Amendment rights of General Flynn and really of all of us have been stepped on by the FBI and the federal government under the Obama administration. And Obama's legacy has certainly been tarnished by this, which is too bad because, you know, I admired him for being the first black guy to want to be president. I mean, you're just putting yourself in the crosshairs there. That takes takes a lot of courage, I think. But, uh, uh, of course, I didn't agree with 99% of what he did. But, you know, you still had to admire what, what he proved and in improving and in bringing uh, black Americans more into the mainstream. And, I mean, you know, how much more mainstream can you be than to have a black president? Pretty good. Pretty cool. I think it's pretty awesome. And, you know, he'll go down in history for that. I admire that. But using using the federal government to uh, to carry out your own political agenda, and I'm sure it goes on a lot, but, you know, the egregiousness of this, the lengths that they took this to, and the encroachment on the Fourth Amendment, not only of Flynn, but of a number of other people who were involved in the Trump administration and had their, their homes raided in the middle of the night and uh, you know, locked up in solitary confinement and cases made against them built on uh, fruit from a poisonous tree, as they say in the law. And, you know, fruit of the poisonous tree is when you discover something illegal that's been done by looking at something you shouldn't have been looking at that, that you didn't have a right to look at as a prosecutor. So that's fruit of a poisonous tree. And, and this should concern all of us because if it can happen to a general in the Army, believe me, it can happen to Dr. Bill. It can happen to you. It can happen to my neighbors. And you say, well, it won't happen if we're all Democrats and we're all, we got all Democrats in. Oh, yeah, it will. <laughs> yes, it will. Even more egregious when you have a single party system. More egregious, even more outrageous. So the Fourth Amendment, this is important. Let's not give it up. Let's keep fighting for it. And you know, they'll bring a war between us, guys. They will. And uh, they'll get us fighting amongst ourselves. And let's